0: Welcome back to Embracing Death, I'm your host Julia. Join me each week as I chat with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with our own inevitable mortality. Thank you so much for coming back to this third episode of Embracing Death. I want to remind you that the subject of death can be really heavy and at times it can cause some intense emotions. In this episode, there are mentions of graphic injuries and death that may be triggering for some, so please proceed with caution. Although these subjects can be very intense and traumatic at times, the entire point of the show is to create and foster a relationship and conversation and open a dialogue surrounding talks of death, so that way we can proceed with comfort, knowledge, and understanding of what happens to us and our beliefs around death and dying. I will once again ask that if you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating, it really helps us on our streaming platforms. And this week's episode is really special to me because I talk with somebody who is a veteran and also in the medical realm. As someone who is also a veteran and in the medical realm, I can really relate to a lot of the things that this week's guest talks about. And he really touches on a lot of things that really reminded me about how I process my trauma and my experience as well. So let's get right into this week's episode where Brady talks about his time in Iraq as a combat medic, how long it can take for repressed trauma to resurface, and how excruciatingly loud it is, as well as how he learned to cope with what he experienced.
1: My name is Brady Allen, and I am a former combat medic with the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division.
0: Brady, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I I really relate to you in the sense that I'm a medical professional and a veteran. Luckily for me, I didn't have to do those two things at the same time. And we do hear a lot of stories about combat medics and people in the military and just the kind of things that they experience. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I think a lot of people, a lot of veterans will be able to relate to your story. So I just want to say again, thank you for coming on the show and agreeing to share your story.
1: Absolutely. I was following you from your through hiking stuff and knew that you were in the medical field also. And so, yeah, I related to you a lot. The
0: hiking thing seems to follow me everywhere I go, which is a great thing because it's a wonderful community.
1: (laughs) And it's a lot of people in a lot of cases working through trauma.
0: Most of us are like trying to work through some stuff. So I think we can all relate. There's a couple Boy Scouts who just really love the woods, but most of us love the woods because of the things that it it offers to us. So I want to dive right in. And tell me, I know you are a combat medic in the Army, and you were a combat medic in the Army in a very intense time. So please tell me a little bit about how you got into the Army, when this was, and what kind of things led you to joining the Army.
1: So I was on active duty with the U.S. Army from basically 2005 to 2009, and the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division is the most deployed division in the U.S. Army. So During that time, I deployed twice. I basically spent half of my time on active duty deployed. And in 2006, I deployed to Afghanistan for basically eight or nine months. In late 2007, I deployed to Iraq. And we were stationed just outside of an area called Sadr City, which is in a part of Baghdad, which during the time period that we were there was pretty much the worst place in the country that you could be. (laughs) And so... We were there from late 2007 to the end of 2008.
0: What kind of things led you to become a combat medic in the Army?
1: I had done an EMT basic class when I was in college. I was doing an associate's degree in outdoor education and did a EMT basic class basically just because when you're in the woods, the more medical knowledge you have, the better. (laughs) And just really enjoyed it. I fell in love with it. And, uh, when I was finishing up that degree, I basically wanted to go back into the military and decided that would be the best way to do it. It was the only way that I was able to be guaranteed that I would work in medicine basically.
0: Yeah. And you also got the opportunity to help people, you know, as someone in the medical profession, a lot of us are called to these careers because we get to help people and we get to do something that, uh, not many people are capable emotionally, physically, and mentally for
1: I think you probably know this from your time in the military, but the the medics are kind of the mom of the unit. You know, your your NCOs and your leadership are kind of dad and are the you know, play the bad guy, but the the medics are the person everybody goes to when they need when they need something, when they need help. Um, and I and I enjoyed being that person for for my guys.
0: So you joined the army, you made it through boot camp, which is it all in itself a whole traumatic experience for most people? And you were trained as a combat medic. And like you said, just a few moments ago, you found yourself in Baghdad in 2007. How long was your deployment to Baghdad?
1: It was going to be 15 months. This was during the troop surge in that period. So the they were 15 month deployments. We ended up actually only being there for 13 so we got we got to come home a little early.
0: <laughs> Only 13 months, wow. <laughs> That's a, I think with both of my deployments, one was 5 months and one was 3 months. Yeah, so you were in Baghdad. The the fighting was still pretty heavy. There was still a large presence of the US military. You deployed as a medic for the combat engineers. So tell me a little bit about what that means, what what a combat engineer is and how that deployment started.
1: Sure. So our battalion was kind of a, a combination support battalion. So our in our battalion we had a bunch of different groups that basically provided support to the rest of our brigade. So we weren't an infantry unit. Um, we were in a infantry unit, but we were we were support staff. So it was we had combat engineers, military police, uh, military intelligence, communications, oh, we had um, fire support, so people that would call in artillery strikes and stuff like that. And just just other general, not direct combat roles, but all oriented around helping with specialized skills for the rest of the unit. My primary duty when I was in that unit was a line medic for our combat engineer company. It's basically solving problems with explosives would probably be the easiest explanation of what a combat engineer does. It's it's a lot of jack-of-all-trades construction stuff, but it's also a lot of they learn how to do mine clearing, breaching, obstacle clearance, and while we were in Iraq, our engineer company was tasked with what's called route clearance, which is basically IED finding, so they're in specialized vehicles, and you're basically driving down the road trying to spot IEDs before you hit them. Our, our guys were rather successful at that, but yeah, they, they still had a few of it they didn't get.
0: Yeah. And the opposing forces were really good at disguising their weapons underground, in vehicles, on people, just in a way that, you know, really war and, and destruction hadn't really, that has not been a thing before these wars, not in this sense, in this, in this magnitude where anyone could be injured. Um, and so you actually suffered an injury, which kind of changed the entire trajectory of this deployment for you and put you in kind of a different location, a different specialty. So tell me a little bit about what happened that led you from being a part of this combat engineer group and moved you into something entirely different.
1: It was definitely, it was not my high point of of the deployment. Um, It was actually on New Year's Day, um, 2008. And it was stupid. I literally stepped in a hole after coming back from a mission and I broke my ankle. And so as a result of that, I couldn't be out as a line medic with my guys because I couldn't really run, couldn't walk that great. And so they basically moved me into the aid station. So I I took over for one of the aid station medics. He moved out and covered uh, my platoon. And I ended up in the aid station for about five months uh, until I was able to um, basically run again.
0: With a broken ankle, you, instead of getting to go home and heal, like most people would have, if they suffered an injury that they couldn't do their job, most people would get to go home or take time off from work. Instead, you know, in the army with, you know, deployments, it's kind of like, well, we'll put you where we can, where you can still work. And so instead of getting time off to heal and recover, you were just transferred to this aid station.
1: We were at FOB Loyalty. Um, it was kind of, it was basically Eastern, Northeastern um, side of Baghdad.
0: What were your rules and responsibilities now that you had transferred from this kind of outside on the ground work? And then in the aid station, what what kind of things happened there?
1: Yeah. So, so in the aid station, we had our, our entire aid station was four beds and at least for trauma care. And basically the way we had it set up is that each battalion had treatment teams because we had Three battalions on the base at any given time. And so our aides, we had the smallest medical team out of the brigade. Uh, Our entire medical section was, I think, 12 people at the maximum. And so we typically only had one bed assigned to us just because we didn't have enough people to do it. Otherwise, which is also the reason why I didn't go home. They didn't have anybody to replace me with. So we split the tables up into areas of responsibility. So I ended up being the head man, which is basically just responsible for airway management, communication with the patient. Um, If they're conscious, you can get their information, talk to them, calm them down. And if they're unconscious, you're basically just trying to make sure that they're breathing and their airway is clear and things like that. The other members on the team, you had basically one person for each arm. One One person did IV and medications and the other person did IV and vital signs as well as just any kind of wound treatment that they needed to do in that area of the body. And then you had another person for the legs, same thing, basically just handling bleeding control and another person who was basically a record keeper. So they would handle keeping track of everything that we were doing to the person so that we could at least try and pass those records on when we evacuated them.
0: So inside this aid station, it's like a four bed emergency trauma, kind of like a trauma bay. And so you are the person responsible for the head, communicating airway support And then you had your other members of the team that each had their role kind of at that quadrant of the body. And at this time, there was quite a bit of action happening in the area. There was a lot of combat casualties coming through your station. How many, like what percentage of casualties were you seeing? How many people a day? What kind of traumas were you seeing?
1: Yeah, this was during the battle for Sadr City. So almost all of the major combat that was going on in Iraq at the time was was very close to us. And there was a period of time from, we we ended up calling it March Madness, just because irony, but uh, it started basically late February and went to June-ish, where we were averaging one to two major trauma patients a day and our typical trauma patient was a bilateral amputee.
0: Can you tell me what kind of what kind of combat these forces were seeing and and what was happening to them? What kind of brought in these injuries? Kind of a little background of what combat kind of looked like to a lot of forces over there?
1: Pretty much all of our injuries were related to IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices. We we had a really specific type that was used most often in our area which was called an EFP or explosively formed penetrator. And it's basically a makeshift shape charge that they would set off. And so it kind of fires like a shotgun shell at the, it's more of at the side of a vehicle versus blowing up underneath it. And so it was kind of a unique injury pattern because you could have one of these hit a vehicle and it would only hit one person in the entire vehicle. It just depended on, where it was aimed and how accurately it hit the vehicle. And so our our typical patients we would get, you know, three at a time and one would be dead and two would be fairly minorly injured sometimes. And so that that was our typical, you know, what we had coming in over periods of time. We obviously had other ones come in, you know, we had some we had gunshot. We we joked afterwards that the only form of trauma we never treated was an electrocution or a drowning. Otherwise, we, we handled pretty much every form of trauma there is over that period of, you know, five months or whatever it was. So, but our typical person was an EFP strike where uh, a lot of times it would take both their legs off.
0: As someone who worked in a level one trauma hospital in the ER and, and being trained in the trauma bays to, to work and see these kind of traumas, we see really, really gruesome traumas once in a while. We see mostly, you know, vehicles, gunshot wounds accidents, things like that. But it seems like you are kind of seeing this stuff on a very regular basis. And eventually, you start getting kind of worn down by constantly seeing, you know, these young soldiers, these young um, people that have, you know, given their life in their and their free time in their youth to fighting for a greater cause that they believe in. And it's got to be very heavy, it has to affect you at some point. Is it, was there a point where you just kind of couldn't take seeing all of this kind of loss?
1: We, we were all getting really close to burnout um, by about the end of March, beginning of, you know April. It, it was just constant. I mean, the, the biggest problem that we had was there was a period of probably almost 35 or 40 days where basically everyone who was coming in the door who wasn't conscious and talking to us was in traumatic arrest and you know from working in the medical field that your your chances of survival if you experience a traumatic arrest are somewhere around 1%. I mean you you could go into a traumatic arrest in the parking lot of Johns Hopkins and your chances of survival are very very low. And so to be handling this you know in Baghdad with four beds and and very limited resources having somebody come in, in a traumatic arrest was as close to a death sentence as as it could be, but you still have to try and help these people. And uh, we kind of, we got to the point around the end of April and around that time period where we just needed a win. We, We needed somebody to come in that we could actually do something for.
0: Using, I don't think a lot of people realize that even though you know the outcome is probably going to be death, as a medical professional, we are required and we want to throw every resource we want to give mass transfusion. We want to do whatever we can. We are slamming in different drugs into these people to try to stabilize them hemodynamically, to give them a blood pressure, to give them a heartbeat. We are doing cardiac massage. We are doing things that we know are going to result in the death, but And it's very labor intensive. It is physically exhausting. It is mentally exhausting. You're doing medical calculations. You're looking at vital signs. You're managing airway. You're starting IVs. It is not just you do this one thing. Your job might be just the head of the bed like you, which is Just manage the airway, just do the intubation, just do what, you know, whatever it is that you're managing, but it also requires you working with those four other people, managing all of their information that they're giving you, working together on what medication needs to be given in what order at this time, when we're defibrillizing a patient, just, it's such a physically, emotionally, and mentally taxing experience. And you were going through this so frequently that I think the quote, needing a win is like life and death for you guys, because at that point you can only give so much energy and so much time without receiving any type of positive feedback. And it sounds like you got a win.
1: We we did finally. <laughs>
0: and it doesn't sound like it's the kind of win that is necessarily feel good, but you were able to take that and get a little bit of a morale boost. So tell me about this win what happened and um, how that kind of changed the trajectory?
1: There, there were kind of two right in a row. We, we had two guys come in in consecutive days and they and they both ended up making it. And that helped a lot. The, the first guy was a little crazy because like, I mean, it wasn't one where it was like, oh, cool. You know, he's going to be fine. It was it was a holy crap. You know, he's not going to die, but holy crap. We, we had a guy come in and typically the way that we, we would deal with it when patients came in is one of our senior NCOs would go outside and help triage. So our, our mechanics worked across the street from the aid station. And so anytime we had a mass casualty situation coming in, which was in this time period, nearly every day, they would run over and help triage the patients and move people out of vehicles and things like that because... You know, from being in the medical field, there's nothing more difficult than to move an unconscious person. And so they would help do all of that. And so our one of our senior NCOs would go over and help kind of manage this because they're not medical personnel and make sure that we got, you know, the most seriously injured person in first and things like that. And he was notorious for kind of underselling the injuries that we people would have. We'd get somebody, he's like, Oh, he's, he would run in before the first patient would come in. He's like, Oh, it, his his legs are messed up. And he would come in there he wouldn't have legs. And so it was that kind of stuff. And this is the only time we could think of where he walked in and he was white and he just, he made eye contact with me and he goes, he doesn't have a face. Okay. <laughs> um, what am I going to do? Also, also, We always joked afterwards that the initial report in terms of what kind of patient we were going to get was always wrong. And in this case, the report that we had gotten of the type of patient is that he was coming in with burn injuries. So that's what we were we were getting, you know, the the aerogel bandages and all the stuff that we would normally use for for treatment of burns. And then he comes and he's like, no, it's just trauma. and He has no face. Would they bring him in and they hand him to me because I was at the head of the bed. So basically the litter bearers would come in and hand me the two lead handles of the litter and I would pull the patient in and get him secured to the litter and then we would start working on him. And apparently what had happened is basically an RPG had come through his windshield and hit him in the face. And so from his eyebrows down, he was it was not recognizable. You understand looking for landmarks and things like that when you're treating a medical patient. So as a head person, you're looking for landmarks to be able to see if their airway is open, see what kind of injuries they might have, head wounds, things like that. And I had no landmarks. I I had to actually look for a couple of seconds before I could figure out where his mouth was. And it basically came down to, I saw his tongue and that was the only landmark I had. And, and he was conscious when, when he came in, he had actually driven the truck with direction from his gunner and his and his passenger of driving the vehicle back onto the base. And he had done that while he was this messed up. And he was still awake. He was trying to communicate with us. We had a, a semi-funny slash shocking moment where I took a big roll of gauze and put it over basically where his eyes would have been because just to try and limit the amount of blood that was pooling around his face and kind of in his mouth and stuff. And all of a sudden he asked me, why can't I see? And the entire aid station just went dead silent because I don't think they had quite realized that he was talking to me yet. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, oh God. And I I just kind of leaned down next to his head and I was like, could you see before? And he was like, Yeah. It's like, okay, I just put a a big thing of gauze over your eyes. So that that was me, okay? Because of all the bone fragments and things that were broke. Me, every everything based from his eyebrows down was shattered. And so he did end up losing both of his eyes. But at the time it was at least a little bit reassuring of like, okay, he can at least differentiate light and dark. So he's got some.
0: I can't imagine. I mean, for you, it's kind of traumatizing to see a human. With losing their human features, right in, in this trauma, but for him, you know, he doesn't really know what has what has happened to him because in his mind, especially when you're experiencing something traumatic like that, a lot of times you are not even processing what happens to you for a very long time.
1: And he wasn't even really in much pain. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this from trauma patients, but a lot of times they're not in a whole lot of pain because none of the nerves are firing. So, so he didn't really. He had no idea. He just knew that he he had gotten hit in the face and he couldn't really see anything, you know, stuff like that. And he and he, I, I he could feel like his jaw was broke and stuff like that. But but yeah, he didn't really understand what was going on. And I actually heard an interview from him later on, and he ended up not remembering anything from basically the time of getting hit to waking up in Germany. Which our our thing on that was always good because. <laughs>
0: It wasn't a great time to be aware of what's going on.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if, if I could not remember some of that stuff, it'd be great. But yeah, yeah.
0: which I think we'll get, in, we'll get into that here a little bit on. So yeah, he had came in with this intense facial injury and you were able to kind of stabilize him, make sure, and he wasn't bleeding out thing, you know, you were able to get him prepared. And eventually most of these intense injuries that of the patients that survived were sent over to, you know, usually Germany where they could receive, um, you know, More hospitalized medical care that wasn't happening in the field.
1: Yeah, we we got him onto the helicopter. We got him sent off. We kind of came back to the aid station and just kind of had like a holy crap that just happened moment of like, yeah, he's gonna be fine. He's he's got a whole lot of surgeries ahead of him, but he's he's gonna live. He had essentially no other injuries, so it was kind of crazy to just like look at that and be like, wow, it was literally just that. So the very next day, one of the engineers actually came in. Who had gotten hit with an ied and he did end up losing both of his legs but he but he lived he came in conscious and talking to him and we were able to basically just package him up really fast and get him out to to evacuate it. and so we had two right in a row where it was like holy crap okay both of those guys are gonna be okay eventually but they you know they got a long road ahead of them but you know we had had we had not had someone leave from bed one that had lived in about a month before that it gives you almost a second like head of steam like it's almost like you know if you're running a race or something and all of a sudden you start feeling good again it's it's like that all of a sudden everybody had more energy and you kind of realize why you're there and what you're doing (laughs) actually makes a difference because but up until that point you were just basically beating on dead guys
0: giving up all giving all this energy to these young men and women and people that just were not compatible with life it has to be really intense and is there anything more about your deployment that you want to share before we move into coming home and kind of unpacking a lot of that trauma
1: this was actually this was april 7th the only reason or no april 6th uh and the only reason i know that is because uh, a buddy of mine got killed on april 7th And so this was a guy who came in and I was not on bed one. So when we did our, when we did our bed assignments, we rotated bed assignments every week, just so that one group of one bed team wasn't getting all of the worst patients because the worst person always went to bed one. And so you would spend a week on bed one and then you would rotate to bed four, which unless you got four patients, you weren't getting a, a patient. But everyone on those beds that didn't get a patient would still go over and help out with whatever they needed to on the other ones. Normally it was doing CPR because we would rotate out about every minute, you know, stuff like that. But you were also just gophers. And this guy came in and we never really found out what happened to him. He hadn't been hit by anything directly and he was the gunner when an IED explosion went off. So we think the pressure wave was actually what injured him. And He was in traumatic arrest when he came in. He had a pretty bad abdominal injury that we were kind of trying to deal with. But physically, there was nothing apparently all that wrong with him, other than the fact that his heart wasn't beating. And so we're going through the, you know, they're doing meds, they're doing epinephrine, they're doing, we're shocking him, we're doing CPR in the meantime. And our brigade surgeon basically just comes up and says, do we want to just give him whole blood? Because we didn't at at our aid station we did not have packed red blood cells or blood on refrigeration we We didn't have the ability to do any of that. so what we were talking about doing was direct transfusion. The three docs that we had there were like. I mean, yeah, let's try it. What's he's, he's dead. Like what, what's the harm? And they check his blood type. One of our other medics who was in the room was actually the same. It was, it was an unusual blood type. It was like B negative or something like that. And you know, from being in the medical field, you try and match the blood type if you can, but if you can't, you also have O negative, which is a universal donor. And so they were trying to find people who matched his blood type if they could, and one of the medics happened to be the same blood type. So he immediately ripped his top off and they started working on getting blood pulled out of him. But the other doc turns to me and goes, hey, go outside, see if you can find anybody else who's B negative. And our aid station was in this building. So outside the doors of the aid station was just a hallway where typically the other people in that person's unit would wait. The MWR tent was right there. And so I ran out ran out in the hallway and just called out, you know, hey, is anybody B negative B- blood type? And one of the NCOs ran down the hall to the other end of the building, seeing if they could find somebody. And I went out the doors to where normally the triage area is. But there's also a large parking lot in that same area. And by this time, it was dark. So I, I bust out the doors and I can't see anything because I'm adjusted to the, to the light and just basically yelled into the darkness, is anybody be negative? And you know how the military is. Everybody takes up the call echoing back a ways. And just out of the darkness, these three dudes come sprinting out and run up the ramp, and we and we run back in. And one one of them actually wasn't; he was just with the other two when when they heard it. But two of them were B negative. They and we found out afterwards they didn't actually know what was going on. They weren't part of the unit that had come in with the injury. They weren't part of the mechanics. Like they literally were walking across the parking lot and heard it and came running. And we ended up pulling basically a full unit of blood out of all three people and putting it into this guy. And it unfortunately didn't work, but we we found out afterwards, basically the pressure wave had just all of his hard organs and like it it popped him like a balloon. He, he As soon as we got him any kind of blood pressure, he started bleeding out of everywhere. And it was just the realization of like, no, he, he doesn't have an aorta. He doesn't have any major blood vessels. Everything has holes in it. But you still had the experience of three complete strangers who have no ties to this person, have never met him, will never meet him again. I don't even know his name. And they still came sprinting to his aid and gave literally their life's blood to try and help him and that was what we had every day. We were all willing to do that level of work on every patient that we had come in for us. So it was exhausting and and draining after a certain point, but you had these experiences where you just get a little bit more faith in humanity (laughs) because people are really willing to do things for each other that you wouldn't necessarily expect.
0: It's, always so special that even in these really crappy times, just people coming out of the darkness, complete strangers. Like I got, I got this blood. What are you going to, what do you need it for?
1: And, and that was the whole thing. They weren't asking any questions about like, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? It was, what do you need? It was a very strange situation. You know, I mean, you, you know, from probably giving people blood in a trauma situation, we were literally pulling it out of one person's arm and plugging it into another person.
0: I can only imagine the visual. It was
1: it was different.
0: <laughs> yeah, like you don't you don't we don't see that in the hospital. We have fridges filled with blood and mass transfusers, um but just it does restore a little bit of faith. And after all of this, you finally had these wins and then shortly after that things kind of changed in the climate of the the war. So tell me a little bit about kind of how what things happened um a lot of the combat kind of looked like it was decreasing.
1: Yeah. So in like late June, early July timeframe, a ceasefire was declared. And so a lot of the, the daily type stuff kind of slowed down. We, we still had patients here and there, but it was no longer, you know, a daily thing. The other thing was I started going back out on missions with um, some of the different groups in our battalion because I, I was healed back up. And so it, it, switched from just being a daily grind in the aid station to being a little bit more variety, a little bit more of just kind of a positive interaction with everyone around you.
0: And so then you were eventually able to come home, your deployment ended, and you separated from the army and everything was going good, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um... <laughs> so i I was um one of the people in our battalion who was stop lost. Basically, you get held over for the deployment for the length of the deployment, even if your contract was supposed to expire before that. And so i I was out of the military basically ninety days after we returned to the United States and pretty much immediately went back to school to finish my bachelor's degree. the The biggest thing for basically the next seven, eight years was, during all of this time period, you kind of have to lock down your emotions. You have to compartmentalize as a medical professional of just to be able to function because you're seeing people with all of these injuries and all of these experiences, and you can't process it in that moment because you have a job to do. And so you just kind of separate yourself from most of your emotions to be able to do your job. And then you get out and you don't need to be doing that anymore, but you can't just turn it off. <laughs> And so you're still kind of compartmentalizing just normal emotions, you know, normal everyday happiness or contentment just isn't really there because your body doesn't want to feel anything.
0: So you came from this 13 months of intense work and stress, and then you come home and you're kind of pretty quickly separated from the army. And then you start realizing that you're not just blocking out those traumatic experiences. You're kind of blocking out everything. Good, bad, passive, active. You're just kind of blocked. And this kind of flooded over into your new civilian life. Tell me a little bit about how that denial of those emotions kind of affected your reality.
1: The the way I always kind of describe it is that I you're you're as close to a robot as it as it can get. You know, you're you're still going through all the motions. You know, I had a job, I finished school, I was doing all of the things that you know a normal, average, functioning member of society does. You're just not feeling any of it, and so you're you're just kind of vacant from even your own life. And now looking back on it, you just kind of realize like you didn't have any investment in anything, like you know, even your own life, and didn't have any major relationships during that time period, didn't, you know, was never really close to anybody because I was just completely shut off. And it took, you know, eight or so years before that started changing.
0: So you were living a totally normal life going through the motions, but experiencing it in like a muted, almost turned off kind of way. And I think I can relate to that in a sense, just when you go through any type of big change, yours was very, very big compared to most. But when most people go through such a big trauma or event that kind of changes, you know, the way that they can experience emotions, you just kind of turn things off. And then you look back, you know, when you're finally able to say, what's going on? Why don't I feel anything? Uh, And then it kind of, once you start realizing that you're not feeling anything, and you're kind of questioning that, they kind of just kind of flood back all of a sudden? Did you experience like a wake up call where your emotions kind of the volume came back up?
1: Yeah, I I started going to therapy through the VA, they did put me on some medications and some stuff like that. But that that was probably the hardest part of all of it. Because there's no like volume switch. You know, you've you've essentially had it on mute, for almost a decade. And then once you unclick the mute button, you have no control over that volume. So you just get all of it at once. And it's completely overwhelming for a little while until you're able to kind of reacquire the ability to not just shut it off entirely, but to just kind of control the volume and, and work with it. And it it was it was, you know, it's it gets worse before it gets better for sure, because it was bad for probably a year or so.
0: You know, what you experienced, I think, isn't uncommon with veterans, especially veterans in wartime that have seen traumatic events happen to their brothers in arms, to their friends, to people that they care about. And you were seeing this every day and it hits you all at once. It's overwhelming. And luckily for you, you had some resources and, and you were able to differentiate that, hey, this is something that's that's happening because I'm now turning back on this volume and I'm unclicking the mute. And a lot of other veterans don't have that knowing or that resource to understand that, you know, they're experiencing their trauma come back and tell me a little bit about what that journey was for you, you know, with therapy medication, turning that volume on, but learning how to regulate it and kind of how, how you realize, how you were able to open up these memories and realize that what you had experienced was immense trauma.
1: It, that, that definitely took time. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the, the veteran suicide stuff. it got so bad when it did, because we didn't lose anybody from our unit to suicide for something like five years after we came back. And I, and I think it came down to people were the same as me. It, they'd kind of turned it off. And then at some point it comes back. And so people started having it come back and they couldn't regulate their emotions. They couldn't, couldn't make it go away and it just overwhelmed them. And so, yeah, we started losing guys to suicide five years afterwards. And I, at this point, I don't actually know what the number is, but it's somewhere more than five or six out of our battalion, which was only, you know, 300 guys, basically. For me personally, you know, I, I had been working, you know, I think it's harder for people who don't have a a mission in life. You know, they come back and they don't have a job. They don't have family. They don't, you know, they don't have these things that allowed me to focus on and not, mess with everything that had happened before. It doesn't make it any more healthy, but it just makes it more stable. And in my case, you know, once I started going to therapy, I was in a relationship, you know, I was able to have support structures where even when it was really, really bad, I knew that I had these people in my life that I, I didn't want to just check out and and go, go away. And a lot of people don't have that.
0: Yeah. That you had kind of a reason to keep going, even if that was the only reason was just for them to to not cause them pain and not to, and to know that, you know, they loved you and that you cared about them, even though what you were going through was really intense. Yeah.
1: I mean, when you're in that period in your life, the only thing you want to do is just make the, make it all stop. You know, it's, it's just, it's like having headphones on at full volume and you can't take them off. And all you want is to just make it stop. And having people around to understand like if I do that I'm I'm going to hurt them and eventually this it's not going to be like this forever some people just never get past never get to that point you know it took until pretty much last year uh when I did my through hike to to really get the volume control back and it's rough
0: <laughs> yeah and being in nature is a really really great way to help um it's like a great practice in mindfulness. So when you're out in nature, you're aware of your steps, you're aware of the birds, you're aware of the trees, the wind, the sun. And I'm not saying that wilderness, like going out in nature is all the therapy anyone needs. But I do think it's a great way to help turn down some of that intensity because there is really something scientifically grounding about being in nature because you don't have the electricity, the the four walls, the wood, the metal. You're actually in nature that as the world was intended to be, which is how we developed as humans was out in nature. We didn't, we weren't, we didn't evolve to live in boxes. And in although that's what we do now, I do want to kind of touch on something else. And I think this a lot of medical professionals, anyone in health and death care and pre-hospital care can all relate to this is that people don't understand that just because we're doing our job, it doesn't remove the fact that we're experiencing trauma. It doesn't remove the fact that we are witnessing gruesome, emotional, intense, physically demanding experiences. And for you, All that while, while you're deployed, as I'm doing my job, I have a job to do, I have a job to do. And then you come home and you're like, holy smokes, what I went through was mass casualty after mass casualty after mass casualty. And most people have never even experienced one thing that is even nearly close to a mass casualty kind of intensity. And for you experiencing that every day and to finally recognize that what you experienced wasn't just your job, you weren't just serving your country, but you were legitimately under trauma stress for months on end
1: it was something that i don't think any of us really realized until we started hearing other people's accounts of things you know to us that was just that was the environment at the time everyone was dealing with the same thing and so later on you know i i saw i read books by other people who were in the same area you know um one of the one of the weird ones was Chris Kyle, who uh, they did the movie American Sniper, and I think his book is the same title, but I'm not sure about that. And more more in his book, I mean, he specifically mentions that he was in that area. He was providing sniper overwatch for Soder City, and it was the worst combat he ever experienced as a SEAL, to include Fallujah and Ramadi. So that was kind of externally validating of like, oh, this this wasn't just like that's how Baghdad was or that's how it how combat is it's like oh this was actually really really bad this was
0: it was extraordinarily traumatic for everyone involved yeah wow
1: and so that was that was at least a little bit validating of like no this was not a normal experience this was beyond what most of the other people even in the same country experienced or saw and we, we just did the best we could, you know, we just had to deal with it.
0: A lot of veterans and a lot of people, especially I'm a millennial, like a, a middle, middle to older millennial. And from generations above us to us, we were kind of told, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk about your trauma. You just kind of brush it off until you die. And so you learned that talking about your feelings and finding a way to get it out of your head was the most one of the most helpful ways and that's why I'm thankful for letting for you agreeing to come on the show and chat with me because I do think there are other veterans out there that just can't talk about it they don't want to talk about it they don't know how to talk about it they don't know how to find a therapist or if it will help a lot of times when I first went into therapy I kept thinking there's no way in hell some stranger is going to help me understand my feelings because I'm feeling it and you know within the first hour you know I'm like oh crap okay Maybe it's not necessarily them. It's just talking. It's just actually getting it out of your head.
1: I, I think the biggest realization that I had when I was talking to different people about it was the, the statement that trauma is trauma. It, it doesn't matter what the specific event was. We as humans react in similar ways. The The way that it affects us, the way that we process it, the way that we react to it is generally very similar. And and that was just kind of, that was kind of my aha moment of like, it really doesn't matter what trauma happened to you. We can all relate to things because we've all had those reactions. It's never going away. You can talk about it. You can not talk about it. You can do whatever you want. Like it's not going anywhere. And so whatever you need to do to be able to figure that out, do it
0: you felt alone in your personal experience, but you know that you're not alone in the fact that we all experience something like that. And I think that's really important is, although what you went through is extraordinarily gruesome and painful and really intense, that everybody in the world is 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 battling some type of trauma whether it be emotional physical mental whether it be mass casualty whether it be loss and trauma and grief we're all experiencing it and like you said doing whatever you find is helpful without causing harm to other people is really is really the journey <laughs>
1: The the rule that I always joke about with that is that it needs to be consensual and it can't hurt anybody else. Or well, preferably not hurt yourself either. But yeah.
0: I mean, and some people are into kind of masochism and we're not here to judge. But um, as long as you're not hurting yourself in a overtly purposeful way to cause harm and only that. Um, but whatever outlet you find to process and move forward and you like you said, you kind of have to trauma's not going anywhere. So you have to kind of learn. To give it a little hug and be like, all right, you're coming with me, but where can I put you that keeps you, keeps me safe? Like, I know you're coming with me, but I don't want you on my shoulder. Maybe I'll put you like in the back seat, in the trunk. Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll look back and say hi periodically, but I don't need you like breathing on my neck.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're not in the passenger seat, you're in the trunk, you're still in the car, but you're not very close. And I think that's a really great way of looking at how to you know, kind of keep your trauma at bay, because if you put it in the trunk, eventually that son of a bitch is going to like make us way to the front seat. And then you're going to, it's going to grab the steering wheel and then you're going to be crashing. So I think that's really important. And thank you for sharing kind of how you kind of learn to cope with um, this trauma that you have. How has your experiences as a combat medic has it reinforced? has it challenged? has it changed what you believe in your thoughts around death?
1: I mean yes i I think I was more spiritual and religious before I experienced all this i I having seen i I so I don't actually know how many people I've seen die <laughs> i I have tried to kind of do the math on it and I know it's somewhere somewhere between thirty and fifty and that's basically just based on the number of people i've done cpr on you kind of realize after you know you you see movies or tv shows or the way it's portrayed in society as being this kind of cumulative event that's the sum of their entire life is is their death and i i kind of no longer agree with that because in a in a lot of ways it's kind of just they're gone and it does. It hasn't necessarily made me more comfortable with death. It just you just kind of realize there's circumstances where there wasn't really a, a a point to it. It can just be an accident. It can just be kind of a random occurrence. And so, if anything, it's made me focus more on you can't take it with you. The my the joke that I always make now is that you know the goal in life is not to arrive safely at the end because that's just it. It's the end. Arriving at the finish line with. A bunch of money and power and friends isn't really going to help you once you cross the finish line. So take advantage of what you have during the race.
0: I love that. How has what you've been through helped you live?
1: You know, for a long time, I, I basically lived to work. You know, my my work was everything that defined me as a person. It was my personality, and I've kind of flipped that now to where I'm. I'll be damned if I'm going to be stuck in an office, you know, pushing paperwork and then have a heart attack. Like that's, that's not what I'm going to do. And so I've worked to do things that I really enjoy and and make a difference in my life and make me happy and allow me to experience things that I otherwise would have never gotten to do. And so that's what I've been doing for the last basically two years now.
0: Well, that makes me really happy that you're able to find a really great way to live that you know it works for you And the last question it does not have to be about death and all this doom and gloom and trauma it can be anything if you could leave the listener with one little quote, a tidbit, a piece of advice or just something to think about, what would it be?
1: the quote that comes to mind is ironically from a science fiction novel but it but it's a uh, you are what you do when it counts it can be applied to all sorts of different things because, what does it count to who, you know, but, but it really comes down to a lot of different things. And, and it really is true. Like you, you are what you do when it matters.
0: Not when someone's looking, not when you can benefit. That's amazing. I love that.
1: Not when you can make money off of it or, or if anybody else cares what you're doing, you know, but, but it, it tells who you are
0: in fight or flight moments, in trauma, in in grief, in happy times, in times where you could benefit off someone else and you know what you choose, like how how you choose to make your decisions when it's important because I think a lot of people they think they're well-rounded, great, they would do the right thing, but when it counts, sometimes we are we're reminded that maybe we do have some growing left to do because <laughs> I I know I'm not perfect. There's times where I'm like, I should have done better
1: when when you can at least try and do the right thing, when it matters that's that's when it's important like nobody cares if you're doing the right thing when there's nothing on the line
0: yeah Mm -hmm. well brady thank you so very much for sharing your story i know it cannot be easy to talk about some of the things that you experience but i do think it's really important for people to hear how not only did you experience this trauma but you have learned to pack it up and put it in the trunk after processing it and i just want to thank you for sharing your story
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you would like to connect with Brady, you can follow along with his journey or reach out to him on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook under the name Meerkat ADV. M E E R K A T space A D V. I want to take the time to thank Brady once again for sharing his story with us. It is very intense. And at times, it's kind of hard to hear these stories about these young men and women who are valiantly giving their energy, time, their body parts, and their lives to serving a cause that they think is worthy. I know a lot of veterans from the early 2000s look back on their time that they served with a lot of uncertainty now because we're learning more about what these wars were really fought over, and how both sides believe that they're the good guys. We are fighting to protect our family and our assets. The same with the opposing forces, and that creates a lot of intense feelings for a lot of veterans after returning home. In an unrecorded portion of this interview, Brady and I go into a lot of detail about that, and that guilt of fighting for our country and then learning that what we thought we were fighting for isn't exactly what we were actually fighting for. But nonetheless, we give our time and energy to things that we thought were important at the time. Whether or not you agree with the war or with the military, you do have to understand that there are lives that are being lived. People are serving. People are doing their very best to do what they think is right. And that is what we have to take into account when we hear these stories. I think having lived through what Brady did is an intense experience and the way that he comes out the other end and just talking with him in a way that he has learned to embrace and grab life by the horns and just live every day unapologetically and doing his own thing in a way that makes him happy makes me really happy and i'm really blessed that i got to hear his story and if you are someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would be interested in sharing your story i want to hear from you so please email your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com you can also submit your story on embracingdeathpodcast.com Thank you so much for tuning in to Embracing Death. The more that we talk about death, the more we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. The less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we still have yet to live. And as Samuel Johnson said, it matters not how a man dies, but how he lives. The act of dying is not of importance. It lasts so short a time. We will see you next week.